Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined by Dr. Brian Crawford. Dr. Crawford is a professor at the Charles L. Feinberg Center for Messianic Jewish Studies and serves with Chosen People Ministries. He recently completed his Doctor of Ministry degree in Philosophy and Theology at Talbot School of Theology. His thesis focused on the worldviews of Maimonides, Kabbalah, and Christianity, and the great Western philosophical tradition they each drew from. His interest in the intersection between Judaism and Christianity began with a visit to Israel in 2005, eventually leading him to live in Brooklyn for nine years. He now lives in Southern California with his wife and three young children. Theologically speaking, it goes without saying that we disagree with Dr. Crawford about the identity of the Messiah, as well as many other things, as we are Orthodox Jews and he is a religious Christian. However, this conversation, we have found an area where we share profound agreement. We have the same uneasiness and distaste for any movement that tries to hijack our respective religions via replacement theology. As Maimonides taught, you must accept the truth from whatever source it comes. So we only ask that you have an open mind and let the presentation speak for itself. As usual, we welcome your feedback, and being that this is a sensitive topic for some, we hope it will spark more meaningful conversations. Maimonides also taught that truth does not become more true by virtue of the fact that the entire world agrees with it, nor less so even if the whole world disagrees with it. And, he also says, do not consider it proof just because it is written in books. For a liar who will deceive with his tongue will not hesitate to do the same with his pen. We ask that you really try to focus on the concepts being discussed in this episode and understand that our intention is to restore honor to the Torah and open our eyes to the cunning forces that have subverted it in plain sight for centuries. Without further ado, Dr. Crawford. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. You mentioned off camera that you recently visited Spain and lamented the atrocity of the expulsion and inquisition. Can you share what your experience there was as a Christian and share your stance on coercion and religion? Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me here on the podcast. Been looking forward to this for for quite some time. And yeah, I visited southern Spain with my wife a couple months ago and we went to Granada and Sevilla and Cordoba, and it really was a surreal experience. Uh, I'm an American. Uh, I've never faced the loss of my own my own town, my own community uh, personally. But being in Spain, I just couldn't help but feel the loss of the Sephardic community. I mean, I've I've studied a lot of the history of Christian anti-Semitism, so walking walking the history in Spain was was difficult. Uh, I couldn't help but feel the weight of the sins of previous generations of Christians as I was walking there. I mean, I, I walked through Jewish quarters with no Jews. Uh, the Sephardim are just a memory there. Uh, the Maimonides statue in Cordoba is one of the only signs that there was ever a thriving Jewish community there. Uh, they only recently discovered a synagogue in Cordoba, which had been plastered over and used as a kindergarten. We got to visit there and that's really the last synagogue left. Uh, none are left. And there's there's signs saying Huderia uh, uh, everywhere. Everybody knows that that's where Jewish people used to live, but the Spaniards have moved on. And everywhere you look, Ferdinand and Isabella are the heroes. Uh, the expulsion is just a fact of history. Uh, just the the expulsion is just not not talked about. And um, that was really disturbing because 
as a as an evangelical Christian, I I believe that you are God's chosen people. Uh, God, as God said to Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed, and whoever curses you will be cursed. And I'm also a Zionist who cares about the Jewish homeland and the well-being of Jewish people anywhere in the world before they make Aliyah. And so seeing the memory of an entire nation of Jewish people just erased was was really painful. And so you asked me about my position on coercion, and um, uh, it's it's hard. It's really hard for me to see all of this because uh, I've read the ancient sources, uh, including the New Testament, and I believe that Christianity used to be a non-coercive religion, and it ought to be today. Uh, I believe that Jesus and his disciples advocated non-coercion in religious matters, and and if you read the church fathers before Constantine in the fourth century, they were pretty much unanimously against the use of force in religious matters. And, and they cited the New Testament as evidence of that position. But everything started changing in the fourth and the fifth centuries, especially with Constantine and uh, St. Augustine. Uh, they basically shifted the position of the entire Western church towards using, using political and moral uh, force uh, and coercive power uh, against against heretics at first, and then eventually against Jewish people. And uh, so it's it's really easy, I think, sometimes to scapegoat the the Catholic Church, especially for myself as a as a Protestant who's uh, not Catholic by conviction. But I think, uh, and I also I also think that um, many Pro Protestants uh, recovered this um, non coercive aspect, this doctrine, uh, starting in the 17th century and later, uh, and they, they called it tolerance. Um, and the United States has been historically part of that stream. But obviously, that that position didn't take root in Protestant Germany, uh, showing that Protestants can fall prey to horrible theology and anti-Semitism and horrible ethics as well. So I don't think this is necessarily a Catholic problem, or even a Protestant problem, or, or a Christian problem. I Unfortunately, I think it's a human problem. Um, whenever we get power, we get tempted to use it in sinful ways, and we need to resist the temptation through what is taught in the scriptures. And unfortunately, the Jewish people have often been the first in the crosshairs when Christians get power, and, and they also believe that it is morally and theologically justifiable to coerce people in, into religion. Uh, if, if a Christian comes to power and does not believe, in coercive methods, then I think that's good for everybody involved. But unfortunately, uh, many, many held to uh, coercive things in religion. So I, I treated my visit to Spain as a kind of meditative experience. Uh, I was lamenting the loss of the Sephardic community and thinking about the anti-Semitic actions and reasoning that led up to the expulsion. And honestly, just trying to learn lessons in my own heart so I, I too, can be an advocate and an ally of the Jewish people, unlike the Christians of, of Spain. You know, um, I think that people don't really appreciate how devastating the expulsion was and also just the Inquisitions because, um, you know, we, we had the Holocaust so recently and mostly Ashkenazi Jews were affected by it. But if you actually... If people actually go and study the history, our rabbi, Rabbi uh, Yosef Biton, um, showed us a book once, uh, just pictures of all the torturing devices that were used against Jews in Spain. And it, it, it was like difficult to, to look at, you know, and I, I just think people, you know, 
owe it to themselves and to their heritage to actually go back and and read about and learn about what happened in the Inquisitions. Um, so um, take it away, Bensi, with sure. the next question. We wanted to ask you, um, you did your doctoral work on various models on God's relationship with the world. Can you briefly outline what some of those are? Sure. Yeah, investigating that was at the center of my studies, and it definitely has relevance to where we're going to go today with Gnosticism and Kabbalah. And I think this will give a good big picture overview uh, to kind of see where Gnosticism and Kabbalah kind of land in a cornucopia of options of thinking about theological matters. So I'm going to plot out a spectrum uh, from the, the least to the most relationship between God and the world. So we'll, we'll, we'll start with the least, with atheism, and we'll end with the most, with which is pantheism. So let, let's start with atheism. Uh, there's no God in atheism, so there's literally no relationship between God and the world because there's no God. And uh, we're none of us are, are atheists here, so we're, we're not going to spend any time talking about that. Uh, the next is deism. This is that God is infinitely beyond us, but he doesn't interact with creation at all. He, he did do the miracle of creation, but that's it. He doesn't provide providence. He doesn't provide prophecy. So there's no such thing as a holy book, a holy text with God's word. Uh, and there's no miracles. So that's that's deism. Uh, the next one, one step over, um, I believe, is the Mamanidean model, uh, where God is infinitely beyond us, and he never does anything directly on earth. Uh, he's infinitely separated from us. Uh, so there's nothing can, that can be compared to him in any way. Uh, it's a purely negative theology or via negativa. And to the untrained eye, up, up to this point, it may sound like deism, but but it's not. Because God performs actions on earth indirectly through his power emanating through the heavenly spheres to this sublunar region where we live with the angels as his servants. So, Maimonides speaks of God mysteriously moving and influencing the outermost sphere of the universe, which then causes the lower spheres to move in such a way that the movement produces God's desired effects down here on Earth in the sublunar sphere. So, God does provide creation and providence and prophecy and miracles, unlike with deism, uh, but he only does creation directly. Uh, in a mysterious way. The rest, um, so providence and prophecy and miracles, uh, he does indirectly through other means. Mm. Uh, next model uh, would be the New Testament model. So one step one step um, more of a relationship between God and creation. Uh, God is infinitely beyond us in uh, New Testament understanding. He has no eternal body and he's not composed of separable parts. Uh, he also provides creation and providence and prophecy and miracles, but he does so directly through his son, who is fully divine. Mm -hmm. um, God is also fully present everywhere in the world. Uh, so this idea of omnipresence uh, without being the world himself. So he's here, but he's not the world. Um, so God is not physically present anywhere in a rock or a tree uh, in a person except when the Son of God chooses to take physical form in very limited instances, of which Jesus is the culminating example when the Son of God took on human nature as a Jewish man. Uh, the next option would be divine corporealism. This says that God's very eternal being includes a body, and it's usually a man-shaped one. 
Uh, this is where God's relationship with the world is such that he's made up of the same stuff as humans. Uh, maybe it's uh, a more spiritual stuff, but he's he's still physical. That's what corporeal means. And this view normally denies that God is spiritually present anywhere because a body can be in only one place at a time. Uh, the next would be metaphysical dualism. Now, this is the Gnostic view that we'll be getting into here in a sec. Um God hates the physical world in this view. It's a mistake created by a lower God or a fallen angelic being. Um, this lower God provides creation and prophecy and providence, but it's not to be trusted because it was done by a lower God. And the, there's, a, there's an upper realm that is good and a lower realm that is evil, but parts of God, so parts of the higher realm, is trapped down here in the lower physical world. So that's where we get more of a relationship between God and the, the world in this model, because God is actually trapped down here. Um, he's among us in the world, but he, he's trapped. He needs to be rescued from the evil physical stuff down here. And um, the, these parts of God trapped down here are, are called divine sparks, and only a few chosen people have the sparks within them. And we'll, we'll spend more time unpacking that. Uh, the next model would be panentheism. Now, it's not pantheism. We'll get to that in a sec. But uh, panentheism says that all is in God. Um, this is the Neoplatonic view. Um, the world emanates from God, like sun rays emanate from the sun, just this constant barrage of sun rays coming from the sun that's the way the world is and but the the world is included in god they 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 have this pre-scientific view that um sun rays are united with the sun because they they they're just instant they didn't have this idea that light traveled in a finite speed mm -hmm. um and so they believed that the world was was intimately connected as the same being as god but god's being goes beyond the world so everything is divine and everything can be graded on a divinity scale so some things have more divinity than others and the goal of our lives is to detach ourselves from this physical world really by looking inward and reminding ourselves that we are divine that we have the divine sparks, that everything has the divine sparks, but especially us humans who are higher up in the divinity chain, and we're supposed to see ourselves as united with everything else. Now, uh, I, I believe that the Kabbalistic view uh, combines this panentheistic view with the Gnostic model, so yes. it takes bits and parts of, of both and puts them together. And then the, the final view um, is pantheism. Uh, this says that the world is God, and his existence does not go beyond the world at all. Uh, this basically removes any personality or will from God. He can't really do anything except for natural processes, which is why a, a lot of theologians say that basically pantheism ends up in the same place as the first link in the chain with atheism. Uh, a practical pantheism, you, you can't act as if God actually exists. So... <laughs> So I know that was a lot, uh, but I, I hope that this is helpful for seeing the whole map of options so that we can accurately locate where Gnosticism and Kabbalah land as we go on in our conversation. Very well said. Can I ask an off-topic thing? 
Um, I was just wondering, as you were going through the stages, the Aristotelian uh, understanding of God, would you put it as deism? The reason why I was thinking that it might not be necessarily because you mentioned that in the deism, God did make an act of creation. I think the Aristotelian method is not necessarily so. Kind of creation is like kind of uh, eternal with him in a way. So mm -hmm. the act of creation wouldn't work in that model. So how would you fit the Aristotelian method here? I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, yeah. So the, there was a eternal, eternal, eternality to the movement of the spheres. There's no creation ex nihilo with Aristotle, which is where Maimonides takes issue with Aristotle. So he 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 follows Aristotle in a lot of ways, but he doesn't follow him here. Uh, there's a divine. There's a divine act that time zero began. Uh, according to scripture, according to Maimonides, according to the Christian tradition, that Aristotle didn't hold to. And Aristotle also had a, a different position uh, than Maimonides on providence, uh, basically saying that God doesn't do anything except for keep the natures of the different beings intact, in uh, but doesn't actually care about what happens uh, to, for instance, human beings. And Where would you put him on the scale? He's a different position on that. A different so you would see so so in a way he's he has his own scale you yes. wouldn't between deism deism and, and Maimonidianism. you can't really it's kind of his own kind of a and sort of in-between take yes yes i agree i i, I believe that uh Maimonides can be best uh encapsulated by taking a bunch of parts of aristotle a few parts of neoplatonism with plotinus and uh, a lot of scripture and you you put all those together and you get Maimonides. Very cool. That was off topic, but I just wanted to, just out of curiosity. Okay. So we touched on Gnosticism on a previous podcast, and we went on many different tangents because it wasn't solely focused on Gnosticism. So um, we had a lot of people reach out to us um, to get more into detail. So this is going to be like a three-part question, uh, just to get a general overview of Gnosticism. Number one, what is Gnosticism? Where did Gnosticism come from? And what are our primary sources for learning about Gnosticism? Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a lot to say about this three-part question. Uh, spend some time here. So what is Gnosticism? Uh, it's notoriously difficult to define. Uh, most mystical ideologies, religions, mystery cults, mystery religions, uh, they're, they're hard to define because they oftentimes are not just one discrete thing. They, they morph and change over time. Um, generally, Gnosticism refers to a variety of religious communities that sprung up in the second and the um, second, third, and fourth centuries CE that that sought personal salvation through esoteric knowledge about a hidden reality. And the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and that really um, focuses on how there is this esoteric secret knowledge that was seen as the key for 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 everything in in this uh, school of thought, and there were different schools of Gnostic thought, and there was no central authority structure, so not all Gnostic groups can be covered by the same definition. Uh, but even so, uh, I, I do believe that we can give a general overview of what Gnosticism is, and I'm going to follow uh, a definition uh, given by Christoph Marxies in his book uh, entitled Gnosis. And um, he says that Gnosticism can be identified through eight common features. 
So the first one is um, a supreme God who is completely otherworldly, distant, and beyond human knowledge. So this would be the classic via negativa God who cannot be known, defined. Uh, you can't can't interact with him in any way. Uh, point two, the addition or the emanation of further divine figures that are closer to human beings than the remote supreme God. So these are lesser divinities, but they're seen as gods, and they're 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 not as infinite or uh, they're they're closer to us than the supreme God. Uh, three. Uh, the idea that the physical world and matter are evil and something that produces alienation from the higher realms. Four, uh, the introduction of a creator God with a lowercase g uh, or some kind of assistant who creates the world. Uh, often this divine figure was called the demiurge or the craftsman and uh, is often described as ignorant or evil, like it was a big mistake that the physical world uh, was created. Uh, five, uh, the introduction of a complicated mythological drama of something going wrong in that upper divine realm, leading to these divine sparks falling into this evil world with a certain class of human beings who have this divine spark within them and can be freed from the evil world. Six, uh, knowledge or gnosis about this fallen state can be learned only through a redeemer figure from that other world who descends from that higher sphere and tells us to uh, believe this secret knowledge. Uh, seven, uh, redemption from the evil world is possible for the special class of human beings who gain knowledge of the spark of God within them. Uh, and then number eight, the tendency to towards dualism with uh, light and dark, good and evil, male and female, and other dualities as reflective of the basic pattern of all reality. So uh, I think that is a good starting definition. There's a lot there, even in those eight points, but I'll, I'll pack this, I'll unpack this as we go on today. Um. So next question, I think, is uh, where did Gnosticism come from? Right. Okay. Yeah. So nobody really knows uh, where it came from. Um, scholars debate as to whether Gnosticism originated from Judaism or Christianity or pagan circles. But it was likely an offshoot from members of all three coming together and mixing all of their ideas together. Um, it had its heyday in the second and the third centuries, but its roots likely go back into the late first century. Um, there were a lot of uh, pagan sources that Gnosticism drew on, uh, namely the Greek mystery religions that came from the broadly Platonic school of thought. And um, I'm going to give you a bunch of isms here that you know we can talk about a little bit, or people can go on Wikipedia and they can look them up. But uh, the Gnosticism is kind of this mishmash of all these different platonic mystery philosophies that all kind of were reading each other's works and combining into each other. And it's called syncretism. Uh, mysticism loves syncretizing all this stuff together. So um, Gnosticism took Neo-Pythagoreanism, mm. uh, Middle Platonism, uh, took Hermeticism, that's a more uh, magical pagan uh, um, platonic offshoot, 
but the the big option, the big uh, summary I think I could give is that Gnosticism, according to some scholars, is a Platonism run wild. It's like you you take you take some of the principles of Plato and his school of thought, and you just let them run amok, and you you get Gnosticism eventually. Um, I think the Gnostics also drew from uh, Jewish and Christian texts as well, uh, but they often had a subversive or a oppositional attitude uh, toward the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, and I'll talk about that in a sec. Um, so where do we where do we read about Gnosticism? What what are our primary sources? Uh, until the modern period, we really had to rely on the Christian apologists only, that, that is the church fathers of the second and the third centuries, who were known for defending Christian doctrine and practice. They saw Gnosticism as an existential threat that just had to be written against. And in the second and the third centuries, kind of going back to what I said before, this is before the fourth century. This is before Constantine. So all of these guys that I'm going to mention, uh, they had no political power to force the Gnostics to do anything. Uh, they Nor did they seek for political power to coerce the Gnostics into not existing anymore. So they took the pen and they wrote against them. And they wrote against them with a whole lot of brilliance and, and force. Uh, the first one that I want to mention is Irenaeus. Uh, he was from the late second century, um, and his his uh, principal work on uh, Gnosticism is called Against Heresies, or Against All Heresies. And I'm, I'm going to be quoting him uh, a bunch as we go on today. Uh, he really gives a brilliant defense uh, against, against Gnostic thought. And uh, he wrote five books against uh, Gnosticism in this Against Heresies, like five volumes all combined in one. Uh, it's it's really well organized. It's logical. Uh, the first book, it outlined Gnostic thought with many quotations and only a limited critique. So his first book, he's trying to portray Gnosticism according to its own sources um, with a pretty detached view, or at least he's attempting a detached objective view. Then in the second book, uh, he criticized Gnostic thought from top to bottom. So he kind of takes the mask off. And he says, okay, I've been holding back in the first book. Now, now we're just going to go to town against this, this thought. And then uh, the third through the fifth books, he gave a positive case for true Christian doctrine using the New Testament, contrasting it with Gnostic thought along the way. Um, at the beginning of his, his first volume, he shared the purpose of, of uh, his book for his audience. And I'd uh, love to give a quote here. He said, Error, in fact, does not show its true self, lest on being stripped naked it should be detected. Instead, it craftily decks itself out in an attractive dress, and thus, by an outward false appearance, presents itself to the more ignorant, truer than truth itself, ridiculous as it is to even say this. Thus, having learned of these mysteries yourself, my audience, you can make them clear to all of your people and warn them to be on guard against this profundity of nonsense and of blasphemy against God. So that was his purpose. He really was trying to make sure that his audience was not deceived uh, by, by this stuff. So we'll, we'll come back to Irenaeus uh, more as, as we go on. But the next guy uh, was Hippolytus. Uh, he was around the turn of the third century. He wrote a book called Refutation of All Heresies. And uh, he outlined a bunch of the Gnostic groups. 
Uh, then we've got Tertullian, again, from the late second, early third century. He wrote Against the Valentinians. And um, he was mostly derivative of Irenaeus's against heresies. It, it was pretty obvious that the church fathers saw Irenaeus as like their their superstar uh, writing against the Gnostics, and everybody was was quoting from Irenaeus. Um, Tertullian also wrote against Marcion, uh, a second century Gnostic-like teacher who believed that the God of the Bible was an evil lesser God, and that uh, that he proceed and he proceeded to cut out parts of the New Testament that didn't. Uh, fit his sensibilities. So, like I said, all of these guys were from the late second to early third centuries, and each quoted from Gnostic texts that they had at their disposal, and they argued against them. And they saw this as a life or death threat. That, and they viewed the Gnostics as corrupting Christian doctrine everywhere. But each of these writers were Christian apologists. They, they were all very much set in their own doctrinal system. So. A skeptic could say that they were just biased or they were portraying the Gnostics in the worst light possible. And you could say that kind of thing until just recently, because that's why it was so important that we discovered the Nag Hammadi codices uh, starting in 1945. Uh, these were a group of Gnostic works that were by the Gnostics themselves, uh, and they dated from the second through the fourth centuries. And we've also discovered the Hermetic writings uh, called the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, which were produced by pagan Gnostics with a focus on magic. So with the discovery of these texts, now we don't need to be so reliant upon these Christian apologists. We can actually go straight to the primary sources of these Gnostic texts, and we can analyze their thought directly and also compare them with what the Christian apologists were saying about them. And so we have we have texts uh, uh, by uh, these different Gnostic sects, these sectarian groups. So we've got uh, texts by Basilides and the Valentinians and the Sethians and the Hermeticists. We have uh, unattributed documents by a bunch of unknown groups that we can't really really peg their 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 leader's name. Um, and so now we can we can identify uh, their principal writings themselves. And I'd like to spend just a just a little bit of time uh, explaining how these groups related to the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, because we we hear what Irenaeus and the Church Fathers said, uh, but what did they actually say in their actual their own documents? And uh, with regard to Judaism and Christianity, the, the Gnostics typically took a subversive uh, or a parasitic or a confrontational stance. Uh, they rejected the God of the Hebrew Scriptures and Judaism in general. Some Gnostics criticized the idea of there being only one God. Others accepted that there was one God, but they changed the definition of what God is, with all kinds of lower beings uh, considered as one in God. Um, in Gnosticism, the God of Judaism is ignorant. He's a lesser demiurge be uh, being. And the creation of the physical universe was a mistake. Uh, performed by a lesser god, often named Sophia or Wisdom, who actually acted in ignorance, wasn't so wise. And uh, the upshot of this is that Genesis should be read as a big mistake, rather than a good creation by a good god. Like when when God said that the creation is Tov Meod, uh, the 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 Gnostics just couldn't accept that. It was it was uh, not a good creation.
It was incomplete. It was incomplete. It was a mistake. It was done by uh, a lesser God that should have known better, shouldn't have done it. Um, so that's that's the creation. But they also rejected the entire narrative of the, of the Tanakh. Uh, they, they said that it was good for Adam and Eve to listen to the serpent and eat the fruit. Uh, they said that Abraham was a joke. They said that Moses and David and Solomon and the prophets were all jokes. Um, and one of the books uh, called the Apocryphon of John, it, it says, uh, it is not the way Moses wrote and you heard. So whatever you heard from Moses, that's not what you're supposed to believe. It's it's exactly the opposite. And so they 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 really had it out for the Hebrew scriptures. They 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 could not allow people to accept its narrative. And they did the same thing with the New Testament. Uh, they created a bunch of pseudo gospels that quoted the canonical gospels, but they turned their meaning upside down. Uh, they attributed the new pseudo gospels to people from Jesus's inner circle. Uh, but these books appeared around the second and the third centuries and had been unknown and unquoted by anybody before. Uh, the ghost, these ghost-written gospels, they also lacked a, a tangible Jewish historicity that the canonical gospels have. So, like for instance, the the New Testament includes detailed historical descriptions of locations in Judea, uh, Jewish customs, Jewish sectarian groups, temple practices, halakhic practices all kinds of historical information about Jewish life before the fall of the temple in 70 CE. Uh, the, the canonical New Testament gospels have this down-to-earth historical feel, but in contrast, these Gnostic gospels, they feel detached from the physical historical world, uh, and they're especially detached from pre-70 Judaism. Uh, they're full of metaphysical speculation and take it or leave it wisdom sayings that are just kind of detached from reality. And they also go out of their way to distance themselves from the canonical New Testament. Uh, they say that Jesus um, did not die on the cross or that he was even a real uh, human being. Uh, they denied that he rose from the dead, which is the central teaching of the entire New Testament. And they turned Jesus's disciples into buffoons who needed to be instructed by mystically instructed women uh, as I mentioned before, Marcion, he he uh, cut out the Tanakh from his canon, and uh, he removed much of the New Testament. It was just too Jewish for him. And uh, then Valentinus, um, he used um, common church theological doctrine and concepts, but he twisted their meanings and basically undermined the whole theology and terminology of, of the church. So all of this forced the church to respond, I, I think, for two reasons. Uh, first, the New Testament is built on the assumption that the Hebrew scriptures are from God. Uh, it says literally that all scripture is God-breathed and given uh, by God for instruction. And uh, the New Testament quotes from the Tanakh on every page hundreds of times. So by rejecting the Tanakh, the Gnostics were also attacking the New Testament. And secondly, the Gnostics were like parasites who were taking common Christian concepts and terms, but turning their meaning upside down and attaching a, this massive made-up mythology to just everything in existence. So because we're now able to read the Gnostics' own writings uh, and confirm that they were teaching this contrarian and oppositional form of religion, it makes a lot of sense why the Church Fathers saw the need to respond and they wrote so much against it. 
Um, here, here's a good quote from Irenaeus. He says that um, they, that is the Gnostics, do violence to the good words of Scripture in adapting them to their wicked fabrications, not only from the words of the of the evangelists and the apostles, that is the New Testament, do they try to make proofs by perverting the interpretations and by falsifying the explanations, but also from the law and the prophets. Since many parables and allegories have been spoken and can be made to mean many things, what is ambiguous, they cleverly and deceitfully adapt to their fabrication by an unusual explanation. Thus, they lead away from the truth into captivity those who do not guard a firm faith in the true God. Mm. So for the most part, the Christian apologist's portrayal of Gnosticism has been mostly vindicated in the eyes of, of most scholars today, because we can actually uh, compare and contrast uh, the two groups of writings. Uh, and despite the Christian writers' strong disagreement, even their bias against Gnosticism, I, I believe they did accurately preserve many key features of the Gnostics' worldview. Very well said and yeah. really informative. Um, so you mentioned, you know, the Gnostic view of God in the universe um, on a basic level. I don't know if you want to go more into it, but I do want to know how the Gnostics envisioned salvation from the world. Great. Yeah, I think it would be good before we can talk about salvation from the world, we need to know how they viewed the world in the first place. So um, let's let's start from the top and work our way down. Uh, the Gnostics viewed reality as this chain or hierarchy of beings. Uh, as I mentioned before, that unknown, unknowable, aloof, supreme God uh, is at the head of the chain. And he emanated lower gods with lessening levels of divinity, and they were often called aeons. And the um, supreme God and all his emanated lower aeons were all united as one in some mysterious way, in something that the Gnostics called the Pleroma, which is called the, the it's it means the fullness. So there's this fullness of oneness with all of these divinities all playing around with each other up in the Pleroma. And there was this harmonious and perfect existence of all these gods together. But then one of these aeons, he rebelled, or through ignorance, he, he left the Pleroma. So he descended or she descended, and this resulted in the emanation of an evil sphere of reality, this physical universe that we live in called the kenoma, or emptiness. So we live in emptiness, and the gods live in the fullness. And this fallen aeon is called the demiurge, which, as I mentioned before, is that platonic term referring to this divine craftsman who shapes the physical world. Um, they, uh, didn't believe in creation out of nothing. They tended to believe that this demiurge took this unformed matter that already existed and just reshaped it into the world that we have today. And they often equated this demiurge with the god of the Tanakh. And this demiurge also emanated the seven planetary spheres and this 12 signs of the zodiac, which were each the realms of evil archons. Now, to understand what I just said in that last sentence, we have to go back to a pre-Copernican cosmology. So today, we know that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, we know that not even the Sun is the center of the universe. The Sun is merely the center of our solar system. 
but back before the telescope, back before Newton, back before Kepler and all of these um, scientists of the Renaissance and the scientific revolution, uh, everybody believed that the earth was the center of the universe and that everything rotated around us and that these planets that we could see moving separately from the stars in the background, these, these planets rolled on these spheres of spiritual substance. And there are seven spheres because we can only see seven moving bodies. And uh, there's different um, lists of the order of the bodies, but you've, you've got Mars and Venus and Moon and Sun and Jupiter and, and Saturn, and they couldn't see beyond that. So they, they didn't know about Neptune. They didn't know about Pluto, if Pluto's still a planet. Uh, I don't know about that today. Um, but they called this seven spheres plus the and uh, the the pleroma of fullness, a seven plus one understanding of the universe, they called it the agodad. And they believed that salvation is when you can release your soul from the earth, which is at the lowest level, and have your soul pass through these seven spheres and go back up into the, the Pleroma. And so cosmology, this pre-Copernican cosmology that we all know is wrong today, was basically the center of their religious, mystical salvation system. And they tied this whole system with um, something that Pythagoras had discovered when it comes to the relationship between math and the physical world. Mm. So Pythagoras, we, we all know him from the Pythagorean theorem. Um, uh, he loved geometry, but he was also a mystic. And Pythagoras noted the relationship between the musical octave and the length of a string. And he extrapolated the mathematical relationship between you know, the string and the sound to all of reality. So math and numbers explain everything in reality. And that's where we get this idea of the music of the spheres. He believed that all of the spheres that the planets roll on, they are continually emanating music. And again, music is numbers, according to his view. And these spheres are emanating music in such a way that they are in such a perfect harmony that you can't hear it. It's just, it, it, it all cancels itself out. So it's an unfalsifiable position. But um, that's where the phrase, the music of the spheres comes from, if you've ever read that in classical works. And so everything is made up of numbers. And these spheres, they're all emanating numbers down to us in the music, and we have emerged from those numbers, from that music. And this is all sounding kind of crazy, but there's a reason why we're talking about this. And we'll, we'll get to this later. Um, and they took their view of numbers to uh, an even deeper level. They came up with this thing called the tetricus. Um, 
they, as Pythagoreans, and all of this was imported into Gnosticism, they had a geometrical way of looking at everything. And so they come up, came up with this thing called the Tetricus, which was the first four numbers. And the first four numbers uh, signified all of reality. So the first number, one, that signifies points because you can number a point as a one-dimensional thing all over the universe. And they believe that everything can be summed up by points, kind of like atoms, okay? So one represents points. Two is when you have two points that are connected to each other. That's a line. So two refers to lines. Three is when you have three points, that turns into a plane, uh, a, a two-dimensional surface. Then you've got uh, uh, four, uh, which refers to bodies, so actual physical things. And I do need to rephrase myself. One is non-dimensional. A point has no dimension. A line has one dimension. A plane has two dimensions. And then a body uh, has four dimensions. And so when you sum up points, lines, planes, and bodies, one plus two plus three plus four, what do you get? You get 10. 10 is the number of all reality. Everything can be described using the number 10. Mm -hmm. And then the Pythagoreans, the, the Neo-Pythagoreans, they then coordinated this. They were, they were the quintessential pattern finders. They coordinated the 10 with Aristotle's 10 categories. So like substance, quantity, time, position, and, and others. So Aristotle came up with 10 quant or, uh, categories that can describe reality. And they then said that that's what 10 means. So, so they're, ten, redefining, they're redefining the term, like you said before. They're that. redefining the term and they're coordinating this kind of physical meaning for 10 to this qualitative meaning of 10 that they got from Aristotle. So basically 10 becomes a number of all reality, both for physical things and for immaterial things like time. I sense that this is a foreshadowing. Uh... Oh, this is definitely foreshadowing <laughs> quite, quite a lot. Okay. Uh, they, they also added mystical meanings uh, to uh, the number seven, which is the planetary spheres, and also 12, uh, the zodiac. And then they assigned each of the letters of the Greek alphabet with a numerical value. And I'll, I'll come back to that a, a little bit later. Um, so that's kind of a big picture overview of how they saw the universe. Uh, it's not really one universe. It's there, there's there's two levels to reality, um, but there's also a relationship between these two levels of reality. Um, it's sometimes called a macrocosm microcosm relationship. So everything down here in this lowest level of reality has some kind of analog or pattern up there. So. Everything here is paired with something up there. And so if we want to understand what's going on up there, we look at what's going on here and vice versa. And so that means that um, everything that is down here uh, has a deeper meaning because we really need to look past what we see here with our own eyes 
to what its analog or its pair is up in the Pleroma. And this turned into a psychologizing of theology. Um, they believe that our minds and our bodies have a structure that is patterned in the universe and ultimately in the Pleroma above. So the human body has, and, and the human mind and the structure of the mind uh, really is referring to something that is happening upstairs. And that means that we can connect with external reality upstairs by looking inwardly into our own self, you know, so kind of navel gaze and figure out how you work. And that's how the heavens work. And then we get into sexual emanationism, where in looking inside themselves, they realize, well, human beings were male and female. And so that must have an analog upstairs as well. Mm -hmm. And so they, they saw sexual male-female principles combining upstairs, and they emanate lower pairs that come down here. And so they, they took the Greek language, which has uh, gendered nouns, and they took those nouns, male and female nouns, to have a metaphysical reality. So like, for instance, Sophia, that's the Greek word for wisdom. Well, it's feminine. Well, that means that wisdom is feminine. Like literally in its actual nature, wisdom is feminine. And they, they took this sexualizing language uh, for the purpose of magical and theological actions. They tried to combine all kinds of stuff down here in these male and female principles uh, to connect with the male and female principles up above. And But they all had different pairs, different names for all of these different things that combine. And there's this really funny passage where Irenaeus, he, he notes how every single Gnostic group has a different name, a different system, a different group of pairs that combine. And he basically mocks these groups by saying, well, if everybody can come up with their own names for everything that's going on upstairs, then we might as well call all of these higher principles gourd, utter emptiness, cucumber, and pumpkin. I mean, he, he, he's just really trying to show that people are pulling these things out of, out of nowhere. And another quote from Irenaeus that kind of sums this up. He said, in saying such things about the creation, each one of them, as far as he is able, thinks up every day something more novel. None of them is perfect if he does not produce among them the greatest lies. So Gnosticism at its core was a system that encouraged speculation, new ideas coming out of nowhere, combining all of these different ideas to have some new spiritual truth. And uh, Irenaeus wasn't buying it. So with, with that with that said, you know, we've got this whole system. Now I think I can answer your question of how did they envision salvation? Okay. How how do you how do you progress in this oppressive system that we're trapped in? Well, like I mentioned, they believe in cosmological dualism. So we're in the evil realm. We're trying to get to the higher realm. But here's where Gnosticism is, is unique. 
they believe that there is a special class of people who have the emanated spark of the pleroma within them and other people don't. So, so humanity is not on an equal playing field. Some people are the chosen who have some special divinity within them and others don't. And this spark that is within the, this chosen, uh, that spark doesn't belong down here. It needs to be reunited with the pleroma above. And the only way to be reunited is to learn this secret knowledge about the spark within you. You need to be inducted into the mysteries of your, of your hidden identity. And if you accept this esoteric knowledge, then that proves that you have the divine spark within you. If you don't accept the knowledge, well, that proves that you don't have the divine spark within you. So uh, uh, it, there, there's, there's no way out of it. Uh, you can't argue against this position. If you don't accept it, well, it's because you're not one of the chosen. And um, only a few will accept this. And that means that it's no use to explain the esoteric knowledge to the masses. It, they're not worthy of it. They, they, they won't get it. Uh, they, they don't have the divine spark within them. So it's better to keep this knowledge secret for a hand-picked inner circle that you know is worthy. They, they've passed certain uh, bars, certain certain tests, so that you know that they are receptive to this secret knowledge. And ultimately, the, the goal is to detach the soul from the bo body using meditative practices, incantations, mystical experiences. Um, and these practices enable the divine sparks to fly upward past the seven planetary spheres that we talked about, and even past those outermost stars so that they will be able to enter into the Pleroma restoring what was broken when that evil God or that ignorant God, uh, you know, was so prideful to create the universe. And if you're not able to do what I just described in one lifetime, well, when you die, you can try again. Because like other Platonic mystery cults, Gnostics held to reincarnation. So mm -hmm. at yeah, basis... Took that from Pythagoras. Pythagoras definitely uh, taught that. Uh, uh, Plato taught that. Um, it is part of the whole Platonic school of thought, uh, believing in reincarnation. Uh, but the Gnostics they 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 adapted the view of reincarnation to turn it into this salvific system where, uh, to use language that um, perhaps we're familiar with. We repair the world by reuniting the sparks through esoteric knowledge. Mm. Yeah, we're going to get to that soon. Uh, <laughs> what I want to um, ask more about Gnosticism is uh, what is the epistemology of Gnosticism? Like, how do they determine what is true and false? Yeah. So Gnosticism is basically a philosophy of distrust and cosmic conspiracy theories. Uh, you're, you're not supposed to trust your eyes because the physical world is evil. You're supposed to look past it to its analog in the higher realm. Don't trust your hearing because everything and everyone is trying to deceive you. Uh, they're, they don't have the divine spark in them. So don't listen to them. There's, there's no truth in their midst. So don't listen to them. Don't trust institutions 
because they're all corrupt. Uh, don't trust anyone or anything except the one teacher that you follow who has a direct connection with the higher realms. So uh, perhaps today we could call these Gnostic teachers uh, a guru or a master or perhaps even a Rebbe, but he is the only one who can lead you to the truth. And it's because he not only has this divine spark within him, but he's also farther along this reunification process than you are. So, so he's already been reincarnated several times, and he already has ascended into a higher spiritual state. And so you need to listen to him over anybody else. He alone holds the secret knowledge. And so you must do what he says and agree with his teaching if you're going to be inducted into the inner esoteric circle and eventually follow in his footsteps and become like him. And if you and don't, if you don't, if you don't, well, then you don't have the divine spark within you. There you go. Yeah. And so we we know some of these these teachers. I mentioned some of them before: Basilides, uh, Valentinus, and and uh, Marcos. Uh, um, Irenaeus writes about Marcos a lot. And you were supposed to tell, uh, give your teacher the ultimate authority to tell you the meaning of reality, because again, you are not capable with your own perception with your own search for knowledge to determine what reality is yourself. Uh, your teacher tells you what reality is. He tells you how to interpret texts. He tells you how to escape the world, how to find salvation. Now, at its, at its core, I don't think there's anything wrong with a religious teacher teaching you how to read scripture or teaching you how to incorporate a scientific worldview with, with scripture. There's nothing wrong with that. But the unique part of Gnostic epistemology is, is that it's really an epistemology of rebellion. You rebel against everyone and everything except for the one, and no one else has any spiritual knowledge or truth in any sense. It really is a bunch of secret Gnostic cultists all in a secret place all distrusting everything else so to give it kind of a modern that was awesome. uh, yeah that was amazing <laughs> to give it kind of a modern uh connection i think it's kind of the blueprint of all cults cults operate with this system the system is brilliant it because it it um it's subversive like you said it 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 makes you think like i think the perfect way of putting it is actually what you said which i've heard before but you actually said it very nicely which is that it's like a cosmic uh or spiritual conspiracy theory kind of you know where yeah. it's it, conspiracy theorists they they a lot of them just don't want to live they want to accept reality as it is so they have to live in this false reality and say no it's not this it's 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 deeper than that so i think that you really summarize that really well um and more about the gnostics how did they interpret their sacred writings yeah so um as i briefly mentioned before they are uh the quintessential pattern finders. They find patterns everywhere. And they did not understand the modern scientific distinction uh, between correlation and causation. It was just totally lost on them. If they, if they saw a correlation between any two things, uh, it, they didn't need to prove any kind of causal relationship between them. Uh, everything that is grouped in the number of seven 
has the same meaning as other things that are grouped in sevens, just, just everything. Um, and same thing with all, all other numbers. And so I want to remind us and, and, and our listeners of those number metaphysics from Pythagoras, where everything in reality can be defined through numbers and written in numbers. And I do want to take a step back. Um, I, my, my, um, in my previous life, not in a reincarnation sense, but uh, about 20 years ago, I was an engineer and uh, kind of once an engineer, always an engineer. I love math. I love physics. Uh, I, I did structural engineering and I loved applying math to describe the physical reality. So I don't want to say that there is no relationship between math and physical reality. No, there, there very much is. And that's why the Newtonian revolution was a revolution. Um, and why Kepler and, and all these, you know, planetary motion uh, equations, they were revolutionary. But I believe that uh, the Gnostics and Pythagoras before him uh, went way too far in putting numbers into absolutely everything. And so this is where I want to introduce us to something that the Greeks called geometricos. Geometricos. Um, they used it to transform words into other words through arcane mathematical formulas. And it has also been called isocephy. Um, so geometricos and isocephy. And uh, I want to give you an example uh, of, of this from uh, uh, a Gnostic work called Pistis Sophia, or the Faith of Sophia, um, which was written in the second century. And uh, here, here's a quote, uh, bear with me. Uh, this is not supposed to make sense. So here we go. But these are the names which I shall give from the boundless one downwards. So the highest boundless one, infinite one downwards. These are his names. And these are the interpretation of the names of these mysteries. The first is Alpha, Alpha, Alpha. Its interpretation is phi, phi, phi. These are Greek letters. The second is mu, 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 or omega, omega, omega. Its interpretation is alpha, alpha, alpha. The third is phi, c, c. And its interpretation is omicron, omicron, omicron. The fourth is c, c, c. Its interpretation is nu, nu, nu. And the fifth is delta, delta, delta. It makes perfect sense, right? <laughs> we we have no idea what any of this means today because this is an esoteric lock without a key. Like we don't know how they were using these these Greek letters with associated numerical values to do these interpretations. It just makes no sense to us. And um, so that's an example of them. Uh, applying this geometricos, but it goes even more crazy and infinite than that. So Irenaeus, he, he brought up this uh, Gnostic teacher called Marcos, and uh, Marcos pointed out that the Greek letter delta is spelled with five letters, including itself. So you've got delta, epsilon, lambda, tau, and alpha. That spells delta. But each one of those letters is made out of other letters. So there's actually an infinite 
amount of letters included in each of the letters of the Greek alphabet. So thus, every single word has an infinite depth of meaning that can be brought out through secret mathematical knowledge and formulas. <laughs> and they also split the 24 letters of the Greek alphabet. Oh, just remind me, guys, how, how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. Yeah, 22. Well, there's 24 in the Greek alphabet. I knew there were 22, but I'm just making a point that they... They said that the 24 letters of the Greek alphabet are what reality is made out of. And they uh, separated the 24 letters into different classes based upon the sound that they make. And they assigned secret meanings. So, for example, they assign letters that make a minor sound uh, to the unspeakable and unutterable father. Mm. And they assigned the vowels to the lower realm because they're more easily heard. And so the end result of all of this is that there can never, ever be any one meaning uh, to any text. A yes can be turned into a no or a simultaneous yes and no and vice versa because you can unpack the way that you write yes in Greek and you can turn it into a no or whatever you want. It's and so ultimately it's brilliantly unfalsifiable because brilliantly if, unfalsifiable. If, if you say if let's say I read it and I understand it a certain way, there, there's always going to be someone who could say, "Well, you don't really understand it." You know, right. like the teacher, only the master yeah. understands. You can't refute it because if, you don't know as much as the master. Is the secret. Yeah. So then, trying to understand it for what it is is senseless. You got it. You're you stuck. got it. It's it's a brilliant defense mechanism against people who are trying to uh, oppose what you have to say. Exactly. exactly. So ultimately, every text, every word, every letter is a playground for anyone to make it say anything that they want. Everything is a metaphor. Everything is a symbol. Everything is an allegory or a pattern for something else. So basically, the Gnostics used language to subvert language. Exactly. Yes. yes. La language just dies and it loses its meaning under Gnosticism. And I think that Irenaeus has a good pithy quote here. He says, the Gnostics attempt to braid ropes of sand. Mm. Can you braid ropes of sand? No. no, but they attempt to. They try to take these words and turn them into other things. And they have all these different mathematical formulas that sound so real. And they tell you to look at these ropes of sand that I'm twisting together into this beautiful shape. And they don't know what reality is. And I think um, one of the tempting and attractive elements of Gnosticism or even Kabbalah um, is that it's so abstract that people just assume that this is just depth. This means that it's very deep. Right. right, and then, and then you connect, you connect, you connect on, yourself. Anyway. When you connect yourself to something you don't understand, and say, it's it's this infinite wisdom. It's this amazing thing that like you just can't really grasp fully. That just shows how deep it is. You you sense a moment of inspiration or a moment yeah. of kind of a, of of you know awe. It's it's that's what makes it so you know dangerous. Right, right, and we we can't deny that we are lesser than God, that we are finite and he is infinite 
And so to a certain extent, we should expect that there are going to be things that are going to be beyond the capability of our human minds to grasp and comp comprehend. The problem is, is that the Gnostics and the Kabbalists, they took that principle and they expanded it to basically all of reality. Even the it's, Torah, even the Torah. Yes, and, and the Torah. So instead of there being a very limited set of truths that are beyond human capability to understand, everything is beyond human capability to understand unless you listen to the secret knowledge from the teacher. Okay. Let, let's let's not yet get to the Kabbalah yeah. thing because I well, want I want to I want to just say mention we just mentioned the Torah thing. Um, you know, you you like you said, you can actually read the verses in the Torah and then just twist it to mean whatever you want, and that's extremely uh, you know it's it's sad to see that happening. It happens a lot, and uh, you know we're gonna get to more of these topics, but um, I think we had one more yeah, question so here. How did what were the practices of the Gnostics? How did they live their lives? Yeah, uh, at at their basic core, they were esoteric separatists. So they invited people to leave their church or their synagogue or their pagan cults and to join them. Uh, they enticed people to doubt the institutions that they found meaning in. And then they weaponized the theological terms and the concepts against them. Uh, they tested people who came to their meetings to discern if they had the divine spark. And if, if they didn't think you did, well, they, they were not going to answer any of your questions about what they believed. Uh, they kept that uh, to, to themselves. And uh, Irenaeus wrote about the secrecy and separatism of the Gnostics in this way. He said, the multitudes, however, cannot know these things, only one out of a thousand or two out of 10,000. They say that they are no longer Jews, but neither are they Christians. In fact, their mysteries must by no means be spoken of in the open, but must be kept hidden by observing silence. So from that quote from Irenaeus, we see that there, there were uh, people who were from the Jewish background, people were who were from a Christian background, but now they denied that they were Jews or Christians anymore, and that they had uh, become a, a different uh, a different group with different practices. Uh, I mentioned before this psychology that was basically theology um, that the human soul is patterned on the higher reality. Well, that that cashes itself out into their practices. Because if you want something good to happen down here, then you need to discern what's happening up there or in some way influence what happens up there. And then the effects will percolate down through the seven heavenly spheres uh, down to here. And that's where you not only get astrology, but also magic. Mm -hmm. And this leads to man's connection with the high, higher beings. Um, they said, said that different angels created different parts of the body. So remember, we have the seven planetary spheres. We've got the zodiac. We've got all these different angels that are sometimes good, sometimes evil. Um, there were 365 angels in total. So they're tying this with their cosmology of the, of the year. And all of those angels worked on the human body. And there are certain angels that are appointed to have power over certain parts of the body because the angel was the one that created that part of the body. Uh, so there's certain angels that rule over heat and cold and wetness and dryness and my arm and my legs and my gut and, you know, everything. So you need to appease those different angelic beings if you want to have some kind of effect 
in your own life. And yes, that that's magic. This is not prayer. This is not uh, uh, asking the one single Lord of all reality uh, if it is his will to heal you. Uh, it's you doing these magical practices and these incantations to try to force these things uh, to happen down here. And so that's where you get all, all this magic in Gnostic practices. And um, we also see that some of the Gnostic groups, they um, they tended towards asceticism, uh, meaning that they tried to uh, totally purify themselves uh, morally, physically, in all ways. Uh, but some of them were antinomians. They basically said that there is no moral law. We've got the divine spark within us. It doesn't matter what we do because we've got the divine spark within us. And so we, we've got this uh, different groups that either go one way or the other. So we can't say that all Gnostic groups uh, had the same kind of moral practices as, as the others. Okay, so, and we kind of had to hold back because um, <laughs> there was uh, a lot of foreshadowing going on. So yes. So we have a better understanding of the Gnostic worldview. What are some of the similarities between ancient Gnosticism and Kabbalah? Yes, you were holding yourself back, and so was I. <laughs> uh, what isn't a similarity? Uh, we're going to get into a couple things uh, uh, that are different from each other, from, from each other, but almost everything that we talked about up to this point has found a home somewhere in Kabbalistic thought. Uh, there are some modifications, but the, the basic structure is the same. So we've got Enso, who is the uh, unknowable infinite, uh, the unnameable, unknowable, highest divinity, uh, who is beyond all reality and yet emanates lower spiritual realities uh, called the spherot. And um, these lower spiritual realities are mystically united with Ein Sof in some way. And there's all these writings about how to understand uh, all of these different relationships between the spherot. And one sephira has all the other spherot inside it. And so it's this both and kind of thing. Um, that is the same kind of idea as the unknowable highest Gnostic divinity that has emanated these aeons or these, these lower divinities that are all united with each other in the Pleroma, in this perfect state. And um, if you read some of the Gnostic writings, not, not the Gnostic writings, the Kabbalistic writings, um, they'll say that there was an initial stage of the spherot where they were actually like an onion with all the 10 spherot all um, in spheres within each other. And that basically took the Aristotelian model of the universe and turned it into this metaphysical reality of the spherot. And that fits with what the Gnostics believed with these different spiritual spheres. Um, and they're all encased within each other. And it's so a hijacking of terms, basically. Uh, it's a hijacking of terms, a hijacking of concepts. Uh, but then we get then we get a cosmic mistake. And it's not a cosmic 
Uh, I want to rephrase that. It's not a cosmic mistake. It's a theological mistake, a a mistake within the perfection of the divinity. So we've got this perfect unity of the aeons with the higher highest God or the spherot with Ansof, and something goes wrong. Something huge goes wrong. The problem of evil in both of these systems began within God himself. There was a mistake within God. In Gnosticism, the mistake was that um, this Sophia, this lower divinity, uh, either rebelled or had some kind of ignorance and left the Pleroma, left the perfection. And that was against the will of the Pleroma. And then that lower divinity created all these problems in the lower sphere. Well, in Kabbalah, we have the same, we have the same kind of thing. We've got this shattering of the vessels where the, the lower vessels didn't have enough strength. They didn't have enough, I don't know what the Hebrew term is, but they 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 were overpowered. The vessel couldn't contain the light. The vessel could not contain the light. And the light shatters the lower vessel. And it creates this chain reaction. And then that perfect original state then falls down and then there's a reconfiguration of the spherot into the shape of a man. And uh, Gnostics viewed all kinds of things. Remember, they, they viewed that the heavenlies were in the shape of what was down here. And they often talked about how the Pleroma is in the shape uh, of a man. And so we we see that this um, this relationship between God and the universe is the same in both of these systems in that the universe, the physical universe is a mistake. Uh, it, 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 it was a big oops that happened within God. And all of these klipot that fell into the lower levels, uh, they, they mask, they, they, they mask the true reality. And, and uh, in, in Kabbalistic thought, the physical world is evil because it's all klipot. And we need to uh, remove ourselves from these evil shards and go back up into the, the, the perfect state uh, that, that we used to be in. Well, even there, there's also the um, reunion between the Shekhinah and, you know, the, and, and the, basically the Ain Sof, because it's, we say, um, you know, there are Kabbalists who, who instituted this prayer, um, which is, we say, a lot of people say before the actual prayers, which is the Shem Yehud. Meaning, Tiferet and, and, and Malchut. Right. Right, yeah. So, so basically there, there's, there's that idea, you know, which we see, but anyway, continue. Yeah. Um, both Gnostics and uh, Kabbalists, they have historically held that the knowledge of these things must be kept from the masses. Now that's, that's not, that's not true today with a lot of Kabbalistic thought. Um, and in the in the late Middle Ages, you know, with Shabbatai Svi and the Hasidic movement, they, they've, they've publicized their beliefs. I mean, on the bookshelf behind me, I, I've got a, a bunch of Kabbalistic works written in English for the layman who is trying to figure out what Kabbalistic thought is uh, to, to practice it. 
And that was not allowed for many, many centuries right. uh, because this esoteric knowledge is dangerous to people who won't accept it, uh, who are not uh, uh, prepared to accept it. And uh, the masses of Jewish people, and especially the masses of Gentiles, are not capable of understanding these things. So it's to our benefit that we keep this as a, as a secret knowledge that you have to pass certain levels of uh, Torah scholarship before you can even speak to a rabbi about these things. Uh, we also see uh, the idea of spiritual elitism between both both systems. Um, we, we see this in certain uh, Kabbalistic uh, Hasidic groups that say that only Jews have an extra divine soul, uh, that everybody else just has a, a lower soul. And that's very similar to the uh, Gnostic view that uh, there are only some who have the divine spark uh, within them. Most famously in the, the Chabad work, the Tanya. Correct. Yes, yeah. very much so. Um, yeah, one of one of those uh, uh, English primers that that first turned me on to all of this was in the back of the Tanya by uh, Emmanuel Shoket, and uh, he he wrote a he he wrote a full, well logical, uh, well described uh, system of all of this stuff, and uh, yeah, he he talks about all of this. Um, both groups envisioned mystical ecstasy as detaching the soul and traveling past each of the heavenly spheres. Uh, and in the Kabbalist understanding and Jewish mystical uh, tradition, uh, you often need a special code word uh, of the name of God in order to pass by each of the angels who are in charge of the spheres. So, so the more that you learn these secret names of God, the more that you have the keys uh, to escape uh, this reality. Um, and if you don't escape uh, the klipot enough in this life uh, through doing enough uh, mitzvot, well, don't worry. You can you can try again. Uh, Kabbalah's acceptance of reincarnation or Gilgul it comes directly from the Platonic mystery cults that included uh, Gnosticism. Uh, we also see uh, between both uh, Kabbalah and uh, and Gnosticism a dependence on pre-Copernican cosmology and Aristotelian physics. Uh, so the seven heavens and the geocentric thought is all over the place in Kabbalistic thought. Uh, you can Zeir see, Pin, yeah. uh, say that again? The Zeir Anpin, right? The lower seven spheroth. Yep. Correct. Um, you can you can read Jeremy Brown's book on this called A New Heavens and a New Earth. Um, he, he did a study of the reception of Copernicus's thought uh, in, in rabbinic circles um, in the early modern through the 19th century. And um, and the Hasidic groups were very much against uh, accepting that the earth is not the center of the universe because so much of their, their thought was based out of that paradigm. And um, so the, the Tanya, for example, um, it, it also uh, has a lot of dependency on uh, Aristotle's physics when it comes to uh, air, earth, water, and fire as the four elements that are the pattern of, of all reality. And so you can connect with reality through these four elements. And of course, we now know that that's, that's just uh, to totally wrong. Uh, a lot more elements than they just- They can always explain it away as a spiritual explanation, right? 
you can mm-hmm. find terms as you go. Which is the other thing that's that's very striking is the um, redefining almost uh, when reading uh, verses. Uh, it it's become open game, right? And Kabbalah will redefine, and everything will will start to you know what you're reading is not what you're reading. What you're reading can only be understood once you understand the mystery behind it, which sure. is what you were referring to earlier. Yeah, I've uh, I I used to live in in New York, lived there for nine years, and I I spoke to a bunch of uh, mostly Chabadniks out on the streets of New York, and I, I could best describe them as like a a slippery bar of soap. You know, you you can't really get a grip on any discrete idea because they just need to put a little bit of pressure on the idea and they can turn it into something else. So, so again, yeah, like you said, sure. They'll say, yeah, we, we see these four elements all over the place, but there's a deeper meaning to all of this. And that, that's where the, the soap escapes your hand. Yeah. yeah. So um, you wanted to make more comparisons. So we talked about the lesser God. There's also the male and female aspect. I think there's a relationship Whoa. there. Yeah. You know, uh, oh, yeah. we talk about um, also the upper and lower worlds mirroring each other. Oh, yeah. Um, the sexual um, yeah. emanationism, as you called it. Right. These are right. All commonalities, incantations, divine sparks, part two theme. The, you mentioned the, like the, the righteous man, the holy man, the tzaddik, right? Mm-hmm. He, is above, he, he is, you know, beyond questioning because... Um, there are, they are kind of in a different plane. They are in Olama Atzilut in Kabbalah, right? Where we cannot, even if we perceive what they're doing as wrong, it's only because we are in a sinful state. So we right. don't recognize the fact that they are, they cannot sin, right? right? And Judaism is very, very much against the idea of, of saint, like saints. We don't have any saints. All of our great leaders throughout history made mistakes. Made mistakes and the Torah is very adamant about that. Right. There's no there's no perfect person. Even Moses sinned and couldn't go into Israel. You you, you don't need to uh, explain to this Protestant why we shouldn't have saints. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there is there is one more. I agree with all that you said. There's one really important uh, parallel that I want to make. Okay. It's um, how gematria. Oh, yeah. You said you originally right. came from the Greek geometricos. Okay. So many scholars believe that Gematria's etymology is from Geometricos. And, and it was not practiced in early Judaism as far as we can tell. Uh, if, you, if you read the if you read this the the, the Tanakh, um, it never uses uh, Aleph or Bet as one and two. It, it never does. It has Echad, it has Shanayim, it has discrete dictionary words and um we don't see this use of uh hebrew letters for numbers until after the emergence of this neo-pythagorean geometricos and and so uh it's cloaked in a hebrew veneer uh people think that it is that it is judaism but i i really do believe that it is originally uh greek and not just any Greek. It was originally pagan. Um, there were there were uh, there was a sec uh, a secular usage of this. Uh, the Greeks didn't have uh, you know the Arabic numbers, Arabic numerals that we have today. So they did actually use the letters to describe the numbers of reality, but they didn't 
attach these metaphysical meanings to the numbers. That's where the Neopythagoreans came in, and that was imported into Gnosticism and then later imported uh, into the Jewish mystical stream. And I think, you know, the Judaism's kind of flirtation or acceptance of other outside ideas is not necessarily always a bad thing. You know, we that's the beauty about Judaism. It's not it's it's very much uh, something that is, you know, it can it can go well with other ideas as long as it doesn't that idea does not go against the you know tenets of Judaism. Um, so which is why we're OK. A lot of people are OK with the fact that the Rambam would study Aristotle. Right. That's that's not a right. problem. Um, but, you know, people have to also recognize that he are, he disagreed with Aristotle in very, very key uh, ideas. Um, and and it's unfortunate that people just kind of, you know, treat Maimonides as some type of, you know, uh, Greek thinker. And he, he he is Aristotelian through and through. And he's not. Right. Uh, so that that's something I wanted to point out. But I think you painted a picture before of this kind of, um, you know, this diagram or kind of this, when we think of the sphero, we think of kind of this. Yeah, but it's it's the it's it's the body kind of of God, right? Um, and there there is this idea that there, you know, the Torah says that, you know, God created us in his image, but in, in Kabbalah, it's kind of like God is made in the image of man. Right. And, and you know, it's it's man-centric. What we do here is the it's there's a theurgical existence where what we do down here affects the upper realms. We kind of can twist God's arm in a way through incantations and magic and all that. Um, and in a way, that is the when we're looking at that diagram, um, we're looking at the worship of the self. Um, that it's 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 all about serving ourselves. We serve God in order for Him to serve us. And there's a there's a reason why um, the Sephardim of the classical tradition of Maimonides always had a hard time, you know, accepting these Kabbalistic ideas because they felt that it's not theocentric, right? Mm -hmm. These are ideas about like we we believe in the the unity of God, not we we're not trying to define how God works and what how he functions and all these things. Not the unity of the world, with right? God. Exactly. Yes. Right. Well said. I agree with all that. Okay. And we also wanted to, it's also important to uh, point out and discuss how does Kabbalah differ from ancient Gnosticism? Yeah, that, that's important. We don't want to say that it's 100% the same thing. Right. Um, so I, I think that uh, Kabbalah cloaks everything in the Hebrew language and rabbinic tradition. So it doesn't look pagan or Greek to the naked eye. So it, it does have, it, it does try to meld the, in the syncretistic way um these these greek pagan philosophies with traditional judaism in a way that that is unique um but i, I kind of i i kind of uh, liken it to um to cholent okay like you you, you throw all this stuff in, in, into the stew and and if you're mystically oriented you, you taste the cholent and it tastes great it's it's really tasty but the question is, do you know what went in? Is, is there trafe inside? Like, what went in to the stew? And I believe that Gnosticism is one of the biggest uh, ingredients. Uh, but it, it, it does, uh, Kabbalah does distinguish itself. So um, Kabbalah doesn't 
directly attempt to contradict everything that came before, like the Gnostics did. Uh, the Kabbalists uh, usually are not trying to subvert halakha or directly contradict uh, the written Torah. They'll say that they agree with the written Torah, that uh, they honor the, the sages and the Talmud. Uh, they don't have this hermeneutic of, of rebellion against everything that came before. Uh, they're more sly about it. Uh, they, they try to keep the outer shell of, of halakha by um, subverting a lot from what, what's underneath. So on the outside, it looks like they're just a regular traditional Jewish person, but the, everything that motivates them underneath is, is different. Um, uh, Kabbalah uh, tends to emphasize the Neoplatonic metaphysical model more than Gnosticism. Uh, the concept of Ein Sof, which is an infinity of infinities that includes within it all finite reality is one united whole. Uh, that's directly derived from the Neoplatonic notion of the one uh, coming from Plotinus in the third century. And uh, there's no two levels of, of reality. There's no dualism in uh, Neoplatonic thought. It's all just one big one. There may be different uh, aspects of reality that emanate from each other, but they're all fundamentally united. Whereas in in um, in uh, Gnostic thought, there there's this break between the uh, pleroma and the, the the kenema, and in Kabbalah there there is more emphasis on the unity. Although the the role of the klipot in that unity is sometimes differently defined this goes to what you were saying in the beginning that kabbalah seems to be a mix of of gnosticism with panentheism you got it this is this is this is where we're seeing it right now correct so now we're kind of coming full circle to that spectrum that i laid out in the beginning where they are combining these two different uh schools of thought and there's one more distinction i want to make um Kabbalah doesn't have some rebelling archon or aeon or angel that creates the physical universe. It's purposeful. In a yeah, way. it's purposeful, but it, it also it also is a misconfiguration of God himself that leads to God's own shattering. So there, there's this there's this root of problems within the Godhead, so to speak, which has the unfortunate byproduct of emanating the lower worlds. So this is this is where Kabbalah differs from Neoplatonism as well. Um, in the shattering and Neoplatonism doesn't happen. Uh, it's just this continuous stream of emanation. Uh, so Kabbalah takes the emanation idea of Neoplatonism uh, and that panentheism, and it merges it with the divine catastrophe of Gnosticism to come up with the shattering of the vessels within the Godhead. So there, there's aspects to both that they then combine into a, a, a third option. Interesting. So, so this leads us to the next, uh, I guess, is the elephant in the room. Um, can you explain how the Gnostic or Kabbalistic Lurianic worldview differs from the Judaism of Maimonides and the Andalusian Gonic tradition? Yeah, it... it it differed so much. Uh, there, there are those who have tried to blur the boundaries and turn Maimonides into a Kabbalist, but but I don't buy it. I know you guys don't buy it. Um, my reading of Maimonides' guide is that he accepted the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, um, which has this 
distinct separation between right. God and everything else. There, there, no, nothing, nothing in creation, nothing in the in the creation process bridges that gap. There, there's a there's a wall there. Before you continue, it's something that actually like um, it, it it's funny because after many many years, I never realized that when we say creation from nothing that essentially kind of throws out the entire Kabbalistical system. And I never, meaning it was never something that I even was aware of. Because I would say, of course I believe creation from nothing, creation ex nihilo. But then I'm like, wait, but creation is not ex nihilo in the Kabbalah. It, it's actually creation from himself. Yes, that is that is one of the biggest points that I make in my dissertation. That like, like right from the beginning, right from the beginning, whether you accept creation out of nothing or not, it basically either allows the Kabbalistic view or totally dismantles it, like yeah. right from the beginning. And the, um, uh, let me let me explain how the Kabbalists try to deal with this. Um, they'll say that they believe in creation out of nothing, but they reinterpret it. They 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 use a different definition of nothing to mean an emanation out of God. So, um, so for instance, they'll they'll use. Remember how we talked about how the Gnostics use different letters to describe different aspects of the divine. Well, the Gnostics have sorry, the Kabbalists have often taken the Hebrew letter ayin, which has no sound, and said that God is like ayin. He he exists, but he doesn't exist because you can't say it, and uh. so. God, God is not a thing. He's not a thing. God is the ein, is the nothing. So he is the nothing. nothing. He is the nothing. So because he is the nothing, we can say that we believe in creation out of nothing because everything emanated from the nothing, from God. And so they, they totally redefined what nothing means but nothing uh it has no properties uh no potentiality no existence uh, you can't even attach the word is to nothing nothing is not it it can't it, you can't describe nothing and so when you say that ain sof is nothing well you're making a propositional statement that is that is supposed to be true. You're using the word is as a truth statement, but you can't do that to nothing. So so again, you're you're totally being illogical with your use of language. Um, so don't I don't buy it when a, a, a Kabbalist says, yeah, we believe in creation out of nothing. Uh, I've I've read sometimes that they even say, yeah, we do believe in a time zero, but uh I haven't been convinced that they actually mean by that the same thing that Maimonides would 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 say out of that. And and to go back to Maimonides, he he did believe in creation out of nothing. Um, there are different scholars who take different positions on if he really believed it, what were his reasons. Uh, I tend to believe that yes, he did, and he said so because of scripture. Um, we can't we can't deviate from from this position. Um, and so he he would have had a, a big problem with this idea that God emanates his his nature or his being 
and that is what constitutes uh, the, the the lower realm. Instead, um, Maimonides did have a Neoplatonic view, but he modified it. Um, he said that God only created one thing. He created the outermost sphere of the stars. And then that outermost sphere <laughs> emanated the lower realities. So that, that is a Neoplatonic emanational view. And uh, that's pretty central to how Maimonides sees everything, this emanational view. But there is an infinite distinction between this one thing, the universe that God created and God himself. Like they, they don't, they don't, they don't go overlap to, each yeah, other. People, people yeah. try to say that the Rambam's description of the 10, you know, angels is really like um, his description, a philosophical description of the Kabbalistic Sphero. But in reality, the, the in, in Kabbalah, the, the changes that are occurring are, are occurring in the Godhead. Right, the emanation that are occurring in the Godhead, whereas in Maimonides, um, the God is not changing at all. Right, right. God causes in a mysterious way. He says he doesn't know how this works, but God causes the outermost sphere to move so that the lower spheres then move in the way that he wants. But God is not changing. God, God is moving the universe, and not have- not things happening inside of God. People have the issue with the fact that you just said, you know, um, he doesn't know exactly how it works with like, oh, well, there's the hole in the whole, you know, Maimonidean understanding. But actually, the Torah itself makes it very clear that humans can't understand how things happen, right? How God runs the world. Right. Uh, that is exactly what separates us from God is that we do not know God. Our mind is not God's mind, right? We right. That doesn't have a mind, you know, so so we we. You know, I think it's important to make this distinction. Yeah. Um, and in terms of, um, I just want to kind of continue with this. Was there anything else though that he wanted to? Oh, yes, about... yes. There, there are more distinctions I okay. want to make. So, um, Maimonides' Aristotelianism uh, is is really important to bring up here in the sense that he believed in one unified reality, uh, not two or multiple levels of reality. So the, the earth and the moon and the heavenly spheres and the fixed stars, they may have been in different levels of spirituality, but they're all united together and they're finite beings. That's the key thing. They're finite beings in one reality, in one universe. So because they're finite, in principle, all things in the universe are open to human inquiry and study. And he said that, well, maybe the heavenly beings beyond us are a little too hard for us to grasp and he he talked about different theories for astronomy and you know epicycles and how how everything works up there and he says maybe this is a little too hard for us to understand but down here in the sublunar sphere it's very understandable and so that's why the rambam was so famous for his down-to-earth pursuit of scientific matters because he cared about this reality because it's the only reality we have and because it's finite it's understandable by the human mind okay. it's not it's not some mystery not, not the, the the table is not a mystery like in uh, kabbalah the table is well it's got some hidden divine sparks within it that emanated from the higher realms and there's a pattern of a table up above there and we need to you know none of that is going on with with um with Maimonides. and okay. so 
it's also a ta the, the sorry for interrupting, but the the Kabbalistic model is based on the ancient kind of outdated scientific model, um, right. and it can reinterpret concept. You constantly could change the the meaning of it, but it's stuck. Um, whereas Rambam, even though he had certain views, he was using the best science of his time, but he wasn't married to those ideas, meaning that as we progress and have better understanding of science and reality, he would be very happy for us to to adapt to a new model. Agreed. Uh, I think he was brilliant. He was willing to point out the flaws in the current theories of the time. And that's where uh, I would agree with you. And a lot of scholars would agree with you that if if the Rambam had been uh, had been uh, exposed to new discoveries, he he would have he would have changed his theological and philosophical determinations. Um, so for Maimonides, uh, he believed that words have meaning because words are down here. They're 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 discrete. They're finite. Uh, they mean this and not that. There's a finality to words and phrases and sentences. But in in, in general, Maimonides he he deserves the 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 down to earth scientific uh rational description uh that that he has gotten over the centuries because his cosmology because his metaphysics were so radically different uh than, than the kabbalists and so anybody who's trying to turn Maimonides into a kabbalist they, they've got a huge uphill battle and it's important to note that this was not unique to Maimonides in Andalus Andalusia this was the general um way of going, the, the general approach to things. Um, Dikduk, uh, grammar, which is the direct opposite of being able to tear apart words, right? But grammar was, you know, for the Ibn Ezra and for the Radak, and these are just different different um, commentators. commentators and sages in Andalusia, right? Um, grammar, precise meaning of words, was everything. That's mm -hmm. what they dedicated their lives to. It's, it's a di direct opposition to everything we spoke about the violence to the language that happens through the mystification right right i just wanted to point that out as well this is not unique just to maimonides just that maimonides is the most uh famous and wrote most and you know he's always but this is really um andalusia yeah agreed and were there Anyone any other points you wanted point, you yeah. wanted to make any other points on this? I, I think I think that's a good summary of some of the major things that distinguish Maimonidean thought from Kabbalist thought. Yeah. So Gnosticism is considered by many Jews and Christians to be an an enduring heresy. Um, can you pinpoint the main factors that make that position ring true? Yeah, I think at at its core. Gnosticism is a catch-all ideology that can attach itself as a parasite to basically anything because it lives on abstraction and speculations about a world that is totally inaccessible to us. We, we mentioned the unfalsifiability of it. Uh, it, it, it. It can turn everything into a speculation that you have to believe in. Uh, it's an enduring heresy because it can appropriate the language and the concepts of any religion any ideology and, and twist it into a Gnostic shape. And as we mentioned before, I mean, uh, Gnosticism took the Platonic stream of mysticism, it took Judaism, it took Christianity, and it, it found ways to mix it all together. And that continued after the second and third centuries. Uh, Gnosticism was eventually 
kind of ingested into uh, uh, um, uh, late uh, antiquity uh, Neoplatonism and then eventually into medieval Neoplatonism. And that's that's where uh, Kabbalah emerged. So it was able to appropriate uh, the, the, the systems, the ideas of other of other religions, other ideologies, and it's just it's just well suited for that. And because it's also so focused on experience and esoteric knowledge, it doesn't allow itself to be rationally criticized or examined or tested. I mean, if you, uh, I've been taking you through kind of a historical perspective here, trying to place Gnostic thoughts on a timeline and then we haven't even really discussed you know when do the first gnostic texts come out what was it uh um uh moses of leon later or was it earlier uh but the kabbalistic texts yeah, yes yeah. i i believe that they they the were Hechalot, later i think the hechalot would play into this right right the hechalot would be a part of the the tradition here uh the transition between them but I believe that all of these uh, Jewish mystical texts and the Kabbalistic texts, they come after the, the Greek uh, mystery religion texts. But people who like the taste of the Cholent don't want to investigate that. They don't want to be told that. It, it, the experience, it tastes good. And so why why are you why are you examining this so rationally and historically and so critically? Because um, I'm having an experience right now. I feel close to Hashem. Like I, I, I feel this connection. So who are you to tell me that my system is wrong? And so it it, it guards itself from any kind of criticism. And, and some who are you people... to question who are you to question these people? Greats. And the fact that it you know these texts always appeared. You know um, at you know at a later like for example Moses de Leon you mentioned. A century or more after the Rambam lived, and then it was written in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, you know, that kind of circumvents the whole, you know, the whole issue. It it's, becomes unfalsifiable. It becomes unfalsifiable. Oh, who are you to question a Tana, someone who's to came, you know, so now it becomes this thing where it, it's it's a secretive text that nobody even heard about. It's not mentioned in the Mishnah, it's not mentioned in the Gemara, and then it just takes over. It becomes like the the central theme of, of Judaism. And later on, Lurianic Kabbalah kind of, you know, change changes Judaism forever. Right, right. And so at, at its core, I believe that one of the reasons why Gnosticism is an enduring heresy is because some people are more experience-driven and don't want to be questioned. And as long as we have people like that, Gnosticism will continue to be an enduring heresy which means I think it's here to stay because we're always going to have people who don't want to investigate matters. They want to experience matters. And, and we can try, we can try to appeal to those people that you need to question your experience. You need to investigate your experience, look for the truth, not just what feels right. And we, we do need to be ever vigilant in opposing it because uh, in human experience, we have not seen uh, this go away so far. Yeah, and I, I also wanted to ask you about the problem of panentheism, because you mentioned how, you know, this is a Kabbalistic or Hasidic, um, you know, invention in Judaism. Um, why would you consider that a heresy? 
Or well, why would Maimonides, let's put it that way, why would Maimonides consider that a heresy? Right. Uh, same reason that I would, uh, because of creation out of nothing, that there is this infinite distinction between God and his creation, and that um, there is not this overlap. There isn't this overflow where we are all one. So panentheism says that we are physically in God, spiritually in God, metaphysically in God, that we are part of God. And that creates all kinds of, of problems, even beyond creation out of nothing. Um, I have a really hard time even thinking about evil existing in Hashem. Right. And that is a huge debate. I, I've got a book on my bookshelf that uh, I, I, I need, need to read. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Primeval, Primeval Evil in Kabbalah by Moshe Idel. And oh, he, and he, he uh, I've read the introduction and he lays out how there's different schools of thought on how to deal with the idea that there is evil in 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 Sof, in God, because if there's nothing that exists outside of him, uh, what is it? Ain old Milvado. If there's nothing outside of him, well, then evil can't be outside of him. Evil is in him. And then you have to either deny that evil exists, which leads to all kinds of problems. You're going to tell me that the Holocaust was not evil. It was just a concealed good. Um, you get into all kinds of problems with that. Or you actually do have to admit that, yes, there, there is an evil aspect in God. And, and it also takes away from the evil of human beings. Right? We had a podcast about this because yeah. if, if you if you say that, you know, the not that God willed this whole thing to happen and if it wasn't going to be the Nazis, it would be someone else. You're essentially saying not only are you saying that God is evil, you're also saying that um, you're taking away the the problem of evil in humanity and you're never going to fight you're never going to actually try to stop that from happening again because you're going to say it's god's will so we can't really stop it anyway it leads to all sorts of, of right and and if you believe in gilgul well uh it's okay we'll just try again next time yeah everyone who died died because of their previous right. gilgul sins or whatever it is right it, it becomes a game and it's and it's yeah okay um this was incredible yeah. um I just I know that you want to read a closing statement, yeah. right? But before you do, I just wanted to mention Please. two things. One, for the listeners out there, um, from just to clarify, the point of all this was not to say that there's not such a thing as a traditional classic Jewish mysticism. Um, there is. Uh, the, the Talmud talks about it. Um, we have done numerous podcasts already to try to introduce, if you may, uh, a classical Jewish mysticism that's consistent with everything that we've been discussing today, not, you know, the Kabbalistic system. So I just want people to know, whoever's listening, they might think that this whole thing is just to basically say, oh, so there's no, there's no, it, there is a Jewish mysticism. That doesn't necessarily mean that we have to believe in, you know, God emanating himself in that type of mysticism. There's a different type of uh, maybe meditative mysticism that, that, that um, our sages uh, adhere to. That's Which is ma Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Bereshit. Right, and the Rambam talks about it more in the Vulcan Third Paragraph. There's many, so there, there's a Jewish mysticism. It's just a matter of redefining what we mean by that. Um, but the second thing I just wanted to say was on my mind while I say it's actually echoing what um, Benji said earlier. But, um, it, you know, during this whole conversation, it, this is hard for me because, not hard for me, but 
when when during your entire presentation and you know these are things that many years ago I already pieced together not in the coherency that you were able to you know put the whole thing you know you put it into a very coherent picture I was able to grab bits and pieces from every little thing and kind of see like okay like you know what I mean like it started to dawn on me you know that I might not have the whole coherent picture but uh, this isn't good <laughs> you know what I mean when you start to see all these different things that are happening and but we see Pythagorean, uh, Pythagorean, Plato, you know, uh, Gnosis, all this stuff. I remember um, a few times, not once, but multiple times, that one of the primary arguments that people who um, are inspired by Kabbalah, who love Kabbalah, who who really position their entire Judaism upon Kabbalah, the main thing that I would always hear was, how can something so deep be not true? You said this. You, I, I'm kind of echoing it. I actually wrote it down. Yeah. yeah. How can something so deep? And this was said to me personally a few times, uh, vividly in my mind. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that people don't realize that it's that 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 statement is coming from a lack of knowledge. Because if you've read, if you'd have read Plato, if you'd have read Pythagorean, if you'd read about the Gnostic literature, not only are these ideas not unique to us, but they are widespread. Um, so, you know... It, yeah, they're just... Pig the Kabbalists are piggybacking on previous ideas, and they're all building off of each other. It's, 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 a, um, it's like you... like like you The, the term you use, it's a trollant of many different things. Yes. Um, but these ideas don't exist unique to us. The problem is, is that most people are not knowledgeable enough, unfortunately, and when they hear you know, about the incredible uh, nuanced and, and, and like a intricate tapestry of Kabbalah, it sounds almost like how can such a thing like not be, you know, you know and, how, and, how could it not be true? Like meaning it's too deep, it's too, that couldn't have been manufactured. But as the presentation today uh, comes to show, unfortunately, um, the evidence shows otherwise. And and I think also, if I, if I may add to that, I think what, you know, people might have a problem with is saying that, like, we believe in one God. You know, we, you know, we don't believe the spherot are God. We don't, we, we, you know, even though we're, we may be panentheistic, um, we actually, you know, we're, we don't, they don't see themselves as violating any type of, you know, idea of tenet of, of Judaism. So maybe if you can clarify a little bit on that, how, how that would violate the tenets of Judaism, the, the idea of God's unity. Uh, so, so the sorry, re rephrase the question. How how would what violate God's unity? Well, the idea the the idea of the panentheist and the idea of the Kabbalist. Yes, because uh, they'll they'll say that we, I we, believe in one God. Believe in one What's God. The, right? issue here? the spirits aren't God. It's really just you know the tools that He used to create the world and so on. Right. Um. I think one of the classic responses to that is, okay, then what is idolatry? If you believe in one God and everything is united in the one God, then why can't we worship that idol? Because that that thing has the divine essence encapsulated in it, and it refers to some higher reality. Um, everything is divine. So that basically makes uh, idolatry not even a reality 
Now, I've, I've heard some arguments against that. They say, well, um, God says that we can't worship the idol, so we just can't. <laughs> but that doesn't fit with the metaphysical reality that and they are actually more focuses on, on idolatry more than anything else more than anything else it's, it's just right it's, it's and, and, and I think the, the rambam yeah. you know the rambam um he has a more sophisticated description of idolatry because there's like there's idolatry of the mind that goes beyond the text right like mm -hmm. there's a outgrowth from this idolatry in the torah um, and the rambam uses very sophisticated explanations of what that is because he's facing he was facing a much more sophisticated version of idolatry, an idolatry that is no longer, you know, statues and and sticks and stones, right? It's it's something that is an intellectualized idolatry where you know, objects and people and things have these degrees of power and 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 kind of sparks of divinity, as you said, um, that are that are more some are stronger than others, and therefore the person doesn't actually think that what he's doing is violating, you know, the unity principle, right? Uh, so I, I wanted to um, end off with a quote that I really love, and it, you kind of you quoted some other people who said something very similar, but um, I mentioned this on my other podcast about Gnosticism. Uh, it was from Paul Johnson in his book, The History of the Jews. He says, Gnosticism, or the lore of secret knowledge systems, is an extremely insidious parasitic growth, which attaches itself like a poisonous ivy to the healthy trunk of a major religion. In Christianity, the early church fathers had to fight desperately to prevent it from smothering the faith. It attacked Judaism too, especially in the diaspora. So um, I think that what you've helped us do, even though we have we come from different faiths, um, we are really coming from a similar position of we don't want our religion to be hijacked, you know, mm -hmm. by uh, uh, some type of parasitic exactly. growth that you know we we don't have to agree on all the little details because you know you believe what you believe we believe what we believe but essentially what we want is a pure unadulterated connection to exactly. the our original texts without any manipulation or you know redefining of terms and that's essentially we what we come to, we've come together to do is to kind of you know both stand up for our religions mm -hmm. well said couldn't say it better Thank you so much. Really, we, this we was really enjoyed this. It. Was a we lot really of appreciate it, um, and uh, I hope it it it. I hope people listen to this and, and makes makes a difference, makes a change. Well, it was my pleasure. This this was wonderful. Thanks for allowing me to give this crazy big picture esoteric monologue on all these different things because this this is not easy stuff. Yeah. If, if you would have asked me even even five years ago before I started doing my doctoral studies, if I would ever be able to speak to any of this kind of stuff, I would call you crazy. Because, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, this is some weird stuff, and yeah. people are attracted to weird stuff oftentimes because of its weirdness. But um, we, we need to be able to respond back with, uh, with reason, uh, with scripture, with tradition, and uh, ask people to question uh, what they are getting themselves into. Well said. And people should also know that Judaism, the foundation of, of all faiths, is the is Abraham, right? He he was the one man among the many in the rest of the world who believed in lies, who who had the truth in his hands. And and it's it's not a numbers game. 
right? Truth is not a numbers game. Just because everybody believes something, that doesn't mean... In fact, the Torah is very clear that, you know, uh, we bring a, a korban chatat for when the leaders of Israel err, right? When they make mistakes. And they, unfortunately, not on purpose, but they, they might lead us astray. So everybody can make mistakes and everybody can be led, even by the greatest people. So I really, you know, I hope that this resonates with a lot of people. And I want to thank you again for making this happen. This was wonderful. Hey guys, so whoever's watching this on video will notice that I'm wearing a different shirt and Brian is also wearing a different shirt. So this is a separate occasion. We realized after finishing the recording that we didn't address one of the questions that Bensi had. Unfortunately, he can't make it to this uh, addendum to the podcast, but we just wanted to address that and put this into the episode. So the question was, Bensi asked, how can it be that Kabbalah, for, from the perspective of, of people who say, how can it be that Kabbalah is, is uh, not, let's say, authentic if it's very, very deep? How can we explain that? So take it away. Yeah, so thanks for having me back for this quick little addendum. And uh, yeah, by by deep, I thought that Benzi was basically referring to uh, basically a system of teaching and belief that was profound and intricate that had all kinds of interconnected truth claims that all made sense with each other and provided answers for so many things and for someone who has been brought up in that kind of worldview sure it, it seems like so many things make sense so how how can it be wrong it answers so many of my life's big questions but just because there are answers in Kabbalah that doesn't make them true answers for reality in the world. I mean, there's there's a lot of religions in the world with a lot of interconnected beliefs and deep answers, and yet they give different answers from each other, and that doesn't make them all true at the same time. Now, from a epistemological or philosophical perspective, uh, talking about what truth is helps in this regard. There's, there's a few major understandings of what truth is and how it works, and I want to introduce you to two of them. Uh, the first is the, the classical understanding. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. This says that something is only true if it actually corresponds to reality, which we have access to. So reality, in this theory, is the test for the truth. And if something doesn't conform to reality, then that makes it false. The second option is the coherence theory of truth. This view says that truth is not actually related to reality because we don't have direct access to any reality that may or may not exist. All of our beliefs are filtered through our own biases and our own subjective perceptions. So at best, all we can do is formulate a web of interconnected beliefs that cohere with each other or are consistent with each other. And in this view, truth is a function of whether or not a statement is consistent with the other statements that we hold at the same time. So when we simply look at a beliefs, belief system and its interconnected complexity, and we see that as indicative of its truth, and that means we're actually operating under the coherence theory of truth. And I think it's actually totally wrong. Uh, so I don't know about you, but uh, 
I'm a Star Trek geek. I love fictional universes like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And each of these fictional universes has a vast amount of interconnected truth claims and events and intricacies that make those fictional universes so compelling. Uh, people can get totally lost in the, you know, doctrine or the coherency or the continuity of those universes or their favorite TV shows, favorite characters, because these fictional universes are supposed to make rational sense. They're supposed to have this canonical unity about them. Uh, that's why when Luke does something that the fans hate in Star Wars Episode Eight. Ryan Johnson can be subjected to vitriol like he's a Star Wars heretic and people can say that he needs to be burned at the stake. So I, I love the universes of Star Trek and Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. I can tell you all about the dilithium crystal chamber on the engineering deck of the USS Enterprise. I can tell you all about this thing that I'm holding up here for you YouTube watchers, uh, the NCC-1701D Galaxy-class starship in Star Star Trek, captained by Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I can tell you about its warp nacelles and its antimatter containment fields and the positronic matrices in androids. And it's also interconnected and smart sounding, but it's all literally false. It actually is nothing. We're talking about nothing. From a truth and knowledge perspective, Trekkies and Star Wars nerds are arguing about literally nothing because something has to exist in order to you for you to have knowledge of it. Are you trying but, to get us are you trying to get us canceled by the Star Trek uh, geeks? <laughs> hey, I I love I love Star Trek, but it is fiction. It is not a real universe. Captain Picard doesn't exist. I know all, all of your Trekkie fans are going to have uh, pitchforks out for me. But as much as I would love to have him pick me up on the Enterprise and take me on a ride past Saturn, that's not going to happen. Uh, yeah. Star Trek has no actual tie uh, to uh, to reality when it comes to its, its basic teachings. So I see Kabbalah as a fictional universe that is similar to Star Trek. It has its own internal consistency. It has its own rules. It has its own orthodoxy. But at the end of the day, it's not tied to any reality as God has made it, and thus that makes it false. Now, Kabbalah gets away with this by saying that our perception is distant from reality. By saying that the reality that we have access to is only the lowest level of reality, and that we should not trust our senses, but rather perceive the reality behind the reality. And that, in principle, makes Kabbalah unfalsifiable, because the reality that we have access to is not allowed to challenge or disprove anything that Kabbalah teaches. So instead, I, I believe that we should return to the, the classic, the biblical model that both uh, Christianity and Judaism have held to for centuries— because it shows up in the Tanakh and in the New Testament. It's the, it's the correspondence theory of truth. And that's what the scriptures are, are grounded in. Because the scriptures teach that there is a single creation that is a single 
finite reality created out of nothing. It's not an infinite universe. It's a finite universe. It's not contained within infinity or some mask for infinity. It's finite. And that means it's understandable. And that also, it also has an inherent goodness and comprehensibility. Our minds can actually understand it. So under the correspondence theory of truth, we can know reality, we can comprehend reality, and that's how we can actually know what truth is. And if we return to that vision of reality, then we can return reality to the place that it deserves, namely as the arbiter between truth and fiction. So under the correspondence theory of truth, history matters, science matters, archeology, span philosophy, ethics, high levels of scholarship, education, all those things that enable us to know the reality of this world, all of that matters because everything in this reality leads us to know the God who made it. So just because something is deep, it doesn't make it true. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that the Kabbalists and the Gnostics that are hoping to travel past the planets on their journey of reincarnation are believing just as much fiction as someone hoping that the Enterprise will take them past Saturn at warp speed. It just I, I, isn't true. Very well said. And I, I would say that I, the better question would be, and it's for a different podcast, um, how can it be that so many great, you know, sincere and knowledgeable rabbis could have been, quote unquote, I don't want to say duped, but it bought into this whole system? That's probably the better question. Um, but, you know, even within the great rabbis and the great Kabbalists, there were many who were, had to grapple with the built-in paradoxes presented by Kabbalah, because maybe it was trying to solve certain, you know, questions that the philosophers, they maybe didn't satisfy them, but it had created more problems than solutions, actually. Um, so, you know, the fact that that exists is, is also something that we should mention. All, another thing is that what people, I think, when they see concepts that are abstract, um, the imagination goes, you know, runs wild because mm -hmm. they automatically assume that that abstraction means depth. Right. And really sometimes abstraction is, it's so obscure that you can attach any idea to it and you can make it sound, you know, more brilliant than it actually is. And the, the, pro the byproduct of that, I think what I see is that people, will, the argument will always end up with, you know, who are you to question, you know, this, this chacham, this great master, if you haven't mastered it yourself. And that's kind of like this ivory tower approach where like, you'll never reach the level. Anytime you question it, you'll, and you, you touched on this obviously in, in the previous recording, but it's kind of a, you know, um, a safety net for them. And that's yeah. really, where, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that. everything that you said. And um, I think that there are probably uh, people that you could have on, uh, the the program who know some of these sages better than I do who could answer your question more specifically but in general uh, there's a there's a philosopher named Anthony Kenny who uh, gave a quote that I'm going to paraphrase now that really helps me to understand in general how to answer your question he basically said that the most brilliant people can be led astray if they start from false first principles if you don't have your first principles right, like what reality is, or how to know what truth is, um, then you're going to go in a lot of different directions. And that doesn't mean that you're not smart. These people are brilliant. Um, people with different worldviews 
have uh, oftentimes equal levels of brilliance. That's not that's not what we're saying here, but that you can be brilliant in things that are actually not true. Just talk to any Trekkie and they're pretty smart about all of their interconnected science mumbo jumbo. That um, is a not actually true. Right, and, and also I would say about like, for you and I, we don't need to be masters of like Sufi Islam in order to not, not accept it as our faith because we know enough from our belief system, we know enough that we don't need to go there. You know, and the burden of proof is always on the one who comes later. So since the Kabbalists came later, I don't need to prove my view. I my my source is already very much, you know, on on dry ink in, in the Talmud and the Mishnah and our tradition. So I don't need I don't need to justify my position because my position is an old tradition. Right. Exactly. And uh they try to get around that by having pseudo pseudopigraphal works that yeah. kind of go backwards in time to try yeah. to nullify that argument. And then, exactly. yeah, so it, it it makes it hard to make that kind of historical argument for people who don't really think historically in terms of when things came around. Correct. Well, this was amazing. Thank you again for making the time. And I hope to do this again. Yes, uh, thank you so much. And uh, can't wait to be back with you guys. Shalom. Right. Shalom, take care. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash judaism pretty easy to remember thank you again and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys